see in the house of the Lord this morning, and it's a great time of year. Christmas is really outstanding time of year. Last night, I happened to be near the Orchard Road area, and uh, oh, it was a mess. It was a mess, and uh, we were stuck in traffic. But you know, in reality, it wasn't that bad, because it gave Effie and I a chance to actually enjoy the lights, see the lights, and hear the horns honking and everything else. It was, it was wonderful. It's a great time of year. Last week, we acknowledged that much of the world recognizes Christmas as a special time of year. And they do this through their gifts and through well wishes and love and sharing and all of that that goes with it. But we also learned last week that the real reason why Christmas is special is because of Christ. Because of Christ. Christ's specialness was shown to us by God's special preparations that he made before Christ came into the world. It's also shown by the special way that God brought Christ into the world through the virgin birth. It is also shown that he is special because of the special reasons why God brought Christ into the world. And so these things that uh, we learned last week help us to put Christ back into Christmas. It helps us to understand that Christmas is special because of the Christ of Christmas. And so this becomes very important to us. Now this week I want to follow up on this with a second message. And that is how do we respond to this Christ of Christmas? The people that uh, you know and people that we have run into uh, have different responses to Christ. For example, I'm sure you have friends or you have family members who have uh, told you that when it comes to Christ, they just ignore him altogether. They just say, oh, he's just a story. He's just a figment of our imagination, if you will. And so they just sort of put Christ aside. And then there's other people who choose to give Christ some recognition as a good moral person with high ideals. And so these people would say, well, my hat's off. I give a tip. I bow my head to nod to Christ. Because why? The things he taught were good, and, and, and we should pay attention to those. But again, that's just another response. Then there are some people who choose to remain unsure, undecided, and uncommitted. And so these would be the people who would say, well, yeah, yeah, Christ is important, but, you know, I really do enjoy the gifts, and I really enjoy the food, and I really enjoy this, that, the other. And so they're just not committed to Christ. And so there's that group. Now, what's important here to understand is that, like all of life, how we respond to things carries consequences, okay? For example, some of you, uh, as, as young people, you've been applying to universities, you've been applying to schools, and you're trying to decide what your major will be, and all of these things. And, and, and so your uh, response to the to the admissions and to the acceptance letters and all that make a great they, they unpack your life they carry heavy consequences and so you want to make sure that you respond appropriately and so in much the same way in much the same way how we respond to christ carries heavy uh, consequences as well so what are the possible consequences or what are the possible responses that you and i can have to christ that's the question this morning. And so I want to direct your attention to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. And this is a very familiar story about the wise men, about the wise men who sought Christ. 
And so uh, our story begins in uh, chapter 2, verse uh, 1 to 8, and it's the wise men who sought Christ. Now, when you read this account of the wise men, uh, I can remember back that when our children were young, you know, we used to kid around with them. We said, we're going to talk about the story of the wise guys. You mean the Bible has wise guys? Yes, he has wise guys. And so we would go in there and we start talking about the three wise guys. And, and, we, and, and of course, it was the story of the wise men. And so as the children grow up, they begin to catch on. These guys uh, were very special people. And so this begs the question. It begs several questions, whether you've heard it for the first time or perhaps many times before. The first question is, who were these magi or wise men mentioned in verses 1 and 2? So look in your Bibles, and it says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. Well, who are these people? Who, where did they come from? Well, history tells us that the wise men were a priestly caste active in Babylon and Mesopotamia in Old Testament times. You say, Mesopotamia? Where is Mesopotamia? For those of us who live today, it's the areas of Iran and Iraq. Okay, it's that area. Amazing, isn't it? That such an ancient area would resurface and become center stage in the world again. But it's Iran and Iraq. In some ways... The wise men were similar to the Jewish people. Many of them believed in one God. They offered sacrifices, and they had a hereditary priesthood. So when they came in contact with the Jewish people, they did have some things in common. But they also had some things that were different about them. For example, they practiced sorcery, witchcraft, and astrology. In some respects, they were the scientists of their day. They were very uh, special, and they practiced the black arts and as well as uh, worshipped uh, their deity. But another thing that made them stand out was that they were very influential and they were very powerful. Because of their knowledge and occult powers, they were rose to positions of power in the courts of kings and rulers. You say to yourself, well, are there examples of these? Yes, there are. If you look at the book of Daniel, remember the... Uh, the advisors of the, ki of the kings that he often came in conflict with, these were those people. These were those wise men. That's who they were. Now, how did they come to know about the Christ of Scripture? Okay, how did they know about uh, they saw a star? What did the star mean? And then what does all this mean? Why would they set out on this long journey? Well, they were part of the Babylonian, Persian, and Parthian empires that conquered and ruled over the Jewish people. And so what happens was that as these empires, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Parthians, they came in, they conquered the Jewish people. What did they do? They took them back to their homeland with them. Why? Because they wanted them to serve the empire. And so they would collect them there. When they brought them into their land, they brought not only their bodies, they also brought their scriptures with them. They brought their faith with them. They brought their beliefs with them. And so the people of these different empires would come in contact with them. The Parthian Empire was a formidable adversary with a combination of the Persian, what was left of the Persians and the Babylonians, but they too were being poised. They were poised to be overtaken by the Roman Empire. 
And so as a result of these empires coming in close contact with the Jewish faith of the Bible, they were exposed to the teaching about a Christ. They were exposed to the Holy Scriptures that prophesied of a coming ruler uh, to, for the Jewish people. And so what kind of passages, what kind of truths would they be uh, familiar with? Well, for example, in Isaiah chapter 7, Isaiah chapter 7, they would be exposed to the truths that are found in verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. We just sang about that, you see? And so these astrologers, these uh, advisors, as they poured over the Jewish scriptures or they talked with them in the tea houses or wherever they were at, they would be exposed that, hey, there's somebody special coming. And so please tell us about him. They also were exposed to such truths found in Micah chapter 5, verse 2. And it says, but as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth from me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity, it says. So what happens here? These people were exposed to the Jewish faith. They were exposed to the Jewish promises of a coming Messiah. And these three that were here before Herod, these were they came out of that group of people. But then when you look at the response of the of King Herod and the people in Jerusalem to their arrival, <laughs> it wasn't quite the one they expected, I'm sure. If you go back to Matthew chapter one, you look at verse three and it says there, when Herod, the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him, it says. They were deeply affected by it. And then in verses 4 to 6, the king gathers up his people. In verse 4, gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. And they said to him in Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler who will, be sh who will shepherd my people Israel, it says there. And then when you go a little bit further, you look in verses, uh, in verses 7 through 8, you see that King Herod was plotting against them. So then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. And when you have found him, report to me so that I, too, may come and worship him. So why were they disturbed? Because Herod was supported by the Roman Empire. That was why he was king of Israel. And to have these guests, to have these strangers to come into his court and tell him, we're looking for the king of the Jews, and it ain't you. <laughs> then you can understand why he was so excited. He was so excited. And because they came from another powerful empire, he was really wondering what was going on. And so that left, left to his deceptive plan. Such powerful men coming from opposing empires, directly opposed to the Roman Empire, posed a great threat. Now, in this response to the, of the wise men, for the uh, Christ of the scriptures, 
There's an example for us. It's an example of how you or and I can respond to the Christ of Christmas. It just all depends on where you are on this. This is the lesson. The wise men investigated the scriptures. They wanted to see if what was said was true. Oftentimes, when I talk to people and I find out, and they find out I'm a pastor, or they find out that I'm a, 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 peace, a pastor or a preacher, they would say, you believe in God? Yeah. Do you believe in the Bible? Yeah. And they said, and I'll turn this question around. It says, and do you believe in the Bible? Or do you know what the Bible says? And, and they'll say, well, well, well I, 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 yeah, I, I know it's a special book. And I know there are special stories in it. And, 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 and I do know they talk about this person, God and, and, and Christ. And, and then I'm intrigued. They got, me, they got my attention. And I say, well, what, what have you found? What do you, what do you believe about God? And what do you believe about Christ? And then they'll, they'll go and they'll say, well, I don't know very much, but uh, this I know, you know. Uh, uh, there was a creation story about Adam and Evelyn. And, and you know, and, and, you know they, they start getting things all, all jumbled, jumbled and, and, and they say, I know a little bit about this and a little bit about that. And I said, well, have you ever really, you know, studied the scripture? Have, have you really just sort of read it and, and asked questions about it? And they say, well, no, not really. I don't really take it that seriously. You see, but then here was the 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 wise men. The wise men had studied the scriptures and they had taken the cues from the scripture and they have said to themselves, we're going to go see if this thing is true. And that's one of the responses that you and I can have to the Bible and to the Christ of Christmas. If you have never, ever really examined the life of Jesus Christ and the teachings of Jesus Christ. Why not do it? What's the harm? Why not do it? These wise men did. And look at what they found. They sought the Christ of Christmas. You see? Let me give you an example. You say, well, that doesn't happen in modern day today. You know, we're just too sophisticated. That doesn't happen. There's a story of a man. His name is Lee Strobel. Lee Strobel. Now, some of you might know him and his works, and others to you, he's a complete mystery, okay? But Lee Strobel was a lawyer. He graduated, he got a degree from Yale Law School. So he got it up here, okay? And he went into a, a, a career of journalism and, and, and things like that. And so he was very well read, very well written, very well thought of. And so his wife came to know Jesus Christ as her Savior first. And he was just fought her, he fought her. He said, I was a fervent atheist, you know? And the more she talked about Christ, the more I talked against Christ, you know? That kind of thing. And then suddenly he just got the idea. I'm going to go check this out. I'm going to go check this out. And so he took his law training and he began to put it to the, to the facts about Christ. And lo and behold, he came to faith in Christ. And he started writing books like The Case for Christ. Then it was followed by The Case for Faith. And now his latest one, The, faith, the, uh, the Case for Creation. And he has become a major apologist for the Lord, meaning he is a defender of the faith. And you say to yourself out there, you say, that doesn't happen. That doesn't happen. It does happen. If people will take the challenge to search for the Christ of Christmas and not just push him aside, not just give him a nod or just perhaps say undecided. Take the Bible. Read it. See what it says. If you don't know what it says and don't understand what it says, come and ask somebody who does. 
You see, that is one of the possible responses that you can have to the Christ of Christmas. The wise men sought the Christ promised in the Bible. But then it goes on further. If you look at verses 9 through 10, what we have is the account that the wise men found Christ and they experienced great joy. They found the they found Christ. Look at verse 9. It says, after hearing the king, they went their way. And the star which they had seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, it says. <laughs> I wish I could have been there when they, for that moment. I love it when happy times come. And I just love to see people's expressions, don't you? I really get a kick out of it. I'm going home and I'm going to see my seven children and all my 14 grandchildren. And when they start tearing into those gifts and they start, I hope they'll have a smile on their face that will just, you know, burn into my brain. And it's going to be a marvelous time. But that's, that's what happened. And so they had this exceedingly great joy that came over them. This is a fulfillment of what the angel had said in Luke chapter 2 to the shepherds. When he, when, uh, to the shepherds. In Luke chapter 2, you remember the angel when he announced the birth of Christ to them? And he said this in verse chapter 2, verse 10. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Guess what? The kings weren't Jewish. Okay? And this was good news of great joy for all the people, including these three wise guys. I mean, the three wise men. You see? And so this wonderful experience came over them. They had found the promised child of the Jewish scripture. Now, there's an important implication here. Maybe perhaps that it goes unseen. But here's the implication. If the scriptures were correct about where to find Christ, then it stands to reason to consider the reasons given in the Bible why God sent him. You see, the word of God didn't say, special child is going to be born. He's going to be here. These are the conditions, so on and so forth. The Bible went on to say why that child was coming and what he would do. For example, in Isaiah chapter 53, in Isaiah chapter 53, verses 5 to 6, this is what the wise men would have known. It says, but he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Now, this was kind of a pronouncement. This was an, a pre-announcement, if you will, that the iniquities of the human race would be put upon this special child who was born. But it becomes clearer in the New Testament when you read the accounts found there. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, it says this, she will, bear a she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So this special child is going to be born. He's going to be born here. He's going to be born this way. And he will come to bear the iniquities of the world, of, of, uh, of, of people. And what does that mean? It means that he will bear the sins of his people. 
But if you go further, it's not just the sins of his people, the Jewish people. But if you look at John, the gospel of John, chapter one, John, chapter one, verse twenty nine. This is what is said of Jesus when he was seen. The next day he saw Jesus coming to him and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. See how the story continues to build? See, first there's going to be a special child. He's going to be born in a special place. He's going to be born in a special way. He's going to bear the iniquities of the world. What does that mean? He's going to save people from their sins. The sins of who? The whole world. You see? And all of this keeps coming unfold. It unfolds like the chapters of a book. Just keeps getting gooder and gooder and gooder as you see it happen. And so this is all that's coming to bear. What does this mean for us? Is that sometimes when we, when we come to Christ, is that uh, sometimes we, 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 the initial rush of people coming to Christ, when you talk to them, you say, you know, they just sense this relief. They sense this sense of, of, of guilt that's been taken away from them. And so what happens is that uh, this joy is very real. This peace that comes to them is very real. Their sins have been forgiven. Their eternal destination has been determined. They have assurance of God's presence and power and provisions in their life. And all of this makes for this great joy. But let me also say to you that after a while, that somehow the joy begins to wear a little thin. And somehow, even amongst the most experienced believers, that sense of joy begins to fade away. It's not as strong. You know, McDonald's had a great commercial at one time. I don't know if you were young, old enough to uh, remember it. It said, it was talked about their hamburgers, and it says, where's the beef? Where's the beef, you know? And sometimes I think about that, and I says, sometimes Christians, especially Christians who've been around for a while, they say, where's the joy? What happened to the joy? Do you see? And why is that? Well, because the Bible tells us that the believers are constantly under attack by the world and the flesh and Satan. There's always this pounding and this battle that's going on, this conflict that's going on. The Bible also tells us that the trials and tribulations, the headaches and hardships of life begin to take their toll. And so pretty soon, believers begin to say, where's the joy? Where's the joy? Where's the joy? Well, ultimately, where the, the joy, the key to the joy of the, of the Christian life is found in abiding in Christ. Abiding in Christ. Now, what does this mean? What on earth does abiding in Christ mean? Well, abiding in Christ means for us to continue to remain or to be in Christ, to be under his sphere, to be under his leadership. And that means that we are genuinely God's people, to be genuinely saved. And so if you look at Romans chapter 8, verse 1, this whole concept of being in Christ and what it means and what benefits it brings. Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are what? In Christ. In Christ. So the question then that begs to be answered is, are you saved? Do you belong to Christ? Are you in Christ? And I'm not going to take anything for granted here. Yes, we're a church. Yes, most people who attend church are Christians. Most people believe in Christ, but not everybody. Sometimes there are those who are still searching. 
There are those who are still wondering. There are still some of those who are wandering. Okay? And so what God got saying to you this morning is saying, have you accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior? Are you in Christ? Well, you can be. You can do it by offering this simple prayer in your heart. Dear Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. I believe that you died for my sins and arose from the, and rose from the grave. I receive you as my personal Savior. Now, at first you say to yourself, Ooh, too easy, too easy, too easy. Sounds too simple. It isn't. Take that thing apart. It's not easy for a person to admit that they are a sinner. It's not easy. Most people say, well, I'm not as bad as these guys. Okay? That's what most people will say. You know? So therefore, I'm not a sinner. I, I'm, not, I'm not that bad. Okay? Or I am bad, but I'm not that bad. Okay? So admitting that we have transgress God's law is not that easy. It takes some thinking. It takes some heart searching. The second thing, I believe that you died for my sins and arose from the grave and rose from the grave. See, we're a very independent people. We're a very qualified people. If you want me to go to heaven, I'll earn my way. <laughs> I don't need anybody to die for me. I don't need anybody to do anything for me. I'll just make it on my own. Watch me. I'll prove it to you. You see, we have that attitude in us, you see. And so it's not that easy to say, I believe that you died on the cross for me. The last part, I receive you as my personal Savior. And this means I put my trust in you. I believe what your word says. That for as many as believe in him, to them gave power to become the sons of God. You see, I'm trusting you. Some of us out here, we can't trust people. We have things happen in our life. And we just say, I have a hard problem trusting people. And I'm having a hard time trusting God. That all I have to do is believe that Jesus Christ died for me. You see? So when you think of this whole decision of coming to Christ as your Savior, it means genuinely being saved. But it also means being staying intimately connected to Christ. Staying intimately connected. Connected to Christ. Person says to themselves, where do you get this? Well, if you went to John chapter 15, John chapter 15. And John chapter 15, verse 1 to 11, is the famous account. We don't have time to read it. But it's the famous account of when Jesus Christ says, this is how you should be related to me. I am the vine. I am the vine. You are the branches. I am the vine. You are the branches. How close is that? That is really close. Okay. And he says you. I'm the vine. And you are the branches. And that's how close we ought to be. And when we are that close. Look what he says in verse 11. John chapter 15 verse 11. These things I have spoken to you. So that my joy may be in you. And that your, what? Joy may be made full. You see, how do we keep the joy going? Where's the joy? It comes by being connected to Christ. That's where it comes from. Well, there's one more way that this can happen. And that's living in community with other believers. Living in community with other believers. Some people don't realize how important it is for believers to be together, whether it's care groups, Sunday school classes, 
you know, just in a, in a fellowship time together during the week. But if you look at Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24, and let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. When we live in community with one another, good things happen. Great things can happen. Imagine what it would be like in this church if after this service is over, different ones spread out all over the church, and they walked up and said, good to see you, brother. Good to see you, sister. Good to see you. How's things going? It, um, how did that thing happen that you asked me to pray for last week? So on and so forth. All of that. It helps you stay connected to Christ. Abiding in Christ keeps the joy going. Well, what are the evidences of staying intimately connected to Christ? If you turn to 1 John chapter 3, verse 24, you'll read these verse. And it says, the one who keeps his commandments abides in him and he in him, it says. Okay, so what is an evidence that you're connected to Christ? It's obedience to his commands. But it is also, uh, there's all, another piece of evidence is living under the control of the Holy Spirit. If you look at Galatians chapter 5, Galatians chapter 5, when we're connected to the Holy Spirit, we know that we are connected intimately with Christ. Look at verse 16. But I say walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. And so living under the Spirit's control. So, Pastor, what is it you're saying to me? What I'm saying to you is that there should be in our lives the obedience to Christ's commands, the wonderful working of the Holy Spirit in our We can obey those commands. I'm saying to you that what happens is as we begin to live in community with one another, as we stay close to Christ, we abide in Christ. And what happens? The joy is there. Where's the joy? The joy comes from abiding in Christ. So the wise men found the promised Christ of scriptures and they responded with great joy. And it can be a joy for us today that is sustainable. You know, I never knew the word sustainable until I came here to Singapore. It's one of your favorite words. Sustainable this, sustainable that. You know, something that's ongoing, something that keeps going. And this is what it's saying, that your joy can be sustainable. And it is something that happens when we abide in Christ. So that's another response. Joy, finding Jesus. What's another response? The last one is found in verses 11 through 12. The wise men worshiped Christ. Look at verse 11, please, in Matthew chapter 1. And then Matthew chapter 2. Look at verse 11. After coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, its mother, and they fell to the ground and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. They came and they worshipped him. The question is, what is worship? What is worship? You see, it's one of the great 
<laughs> wars that is happening in churches all around the world. What is worship? Is it hands up, hands down? What is it, you know? Is it standing up? Is it sitting down? What is it, you know? Is it singing loud? Is it singing softly? What is it, you know? And it's just going on and on and on. But what is worship? Well, this quote comes from Professor Dan Block. And he writes, he defines worship this way. It's the reverential human acts of submission and homage before the divine sovereign in response to his gracious revelation of himself and in accordance with his will. Now, you would say out there, ah, spoken like a professor, spoken like a professor. I like to boil things down. Two words underlined for you, the word submission and the word homage. Do you see that in the actions of the wise men? Yes, you do. We see homage. We see respect and reverence being honored, being presented to Christ. In verse 11, the Bible says they fell down to the ground to worship him. Now, what is significant here is these men were used to being adored, venerated, and others submitting to their every command. They were used to having people bow to them and not vice versa. You see? But that's exactly what they did. And then they honored him. How? Look at verse 11. They said they gave him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. All of these things are very precious. You don't give these kinds of gifts to just anybody. But you give them to someone who is very special. And so they gave that to the Christ child. There was homage. There was honor. There was reverence. There was respect that was given to Christ. But pastor, in that definition, it says there was also submission. Where's the submission? Look at verse 12. Look at verse 12. In verse 12, they got a dream. And instead of going back to Herod and telling him where the Christ child was, they went home on their own. They went the other way. They were submitting to the leadership of the Lord, you see. So what do we see? They worshiped the Lord. How? By submission and by homage, by honoring him and by submitting to him. You see, that is worship. That is worship. Well, people find it hard to worship God these days, don't you think? I mean, you know, we have all these ideas of worship and things like that. Some people come into church and they say, well, you know, I, I'm really looking forward to worship today. I said, really? What are you looking for? Uh, 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 <laughs> you know, don't we stand there? It's not that easy to worship God. I was reading an article written by uh, Jared Solomon uh, from Dallas, Texas, and he came up with some uh, hindrances to modern-day worship. One of them was pragmatism. Pragmatism. People are looking for what they want and not what they need. They're looking for what they want. So people come into church and say, I'm here to worship the Lord. What, what is that? I'm looking for a wowee rock concert. You know, that's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for a speaker that will get up there and just knock my socks off. You know, just make me hoop and holler, go out and jump off the uh, PIE or something. You know, all this kind of stuff. You know, And then when they don't get it, they wonder, did I worship God today? Did I worship God today? You know, see? And so people come and they're so pragmatic that they felt uh, they come looking for what they want rather than what they need. And sometimes God comes back and God comes back to you 
The message of the day is one of meditation. It's one of reflection. It's one of repentance. But it's not what I want. But that's what God gave us today. And then another hindrance to it is intellectualism. Now, please do not say think I said something that I didn't say. Okay, so listen very carefully. Intellectualism. Preaching and teaching is an important element of worship, and I think it should be well done. Preaching and teaching must be accurate. It must be clear. It must be relevant. Okay, all of those things. But when it is accurate, when it is clear, and when it is relevant, we can expect that we will hear things sometimes that we may not agree with. We can expect that sometimes we will hear things that we do not, that does not please us. You see? Because this is God. This is God. All good preaching and teaching ought to proclaim and declare God. And when that happens, sometimes it doesn't meet our expectations. If you look at Isaiah chapter 55, verses 8 and 9, it says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways uh, your ways, declares the Lord. As for the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. You see, sometimes we come in with all these expectations. And God says, this is what I have for you today. And sometimes it doesn't sit well. Sometimes it's not agreeable to us. But God nevertheless renders it toward us. There's a third area. And this is one I've found myself just in personal experience with people. And this is the idolatry. It's idolatry. This is what keeps us from worshiping God. People choose to worship idols rather than God. And idols are a very real part of our lives today. But I must say that the idols today may not resemble the idols of yesteryear. This is a quote from S. Michael Hoodman, who wrote this about worship and idols. The idols of the 21st century often bear no resemblance to the artifacts used thousands of years ago. Today, we have replaced the golden calf with an insatiable drive to reach to the top of the corporate ladder or with a myriad of other passionate pursuits, goals, dreams, all together excluding God. That's what an idol does. That's what an idol does. And it's a very real part of our life today. It's a real part of my life. It's a real part of your life, all of ours here in this room. The idols are not only a real part of our lives, they are very appealing they are, they are attractive to the mighty and to the needy, to the rich and to the poor. It, is a, it, is, it discriminates against nobody. <laughs> it appeals to everybody. And then they fit our own dreams and aspirations, standards and expectations. They shape us, in fact, into their image if we're not careful. This is what Psalms 115 verse 8a says. It says, those who make them, meaning idols, will become like them. You see? And so idolatry keeps us from worshiping the Lord. The idols can be very controlling. They can easily become masters of our time, energy, thoughts, longings, and choices. Speaking of idols, making money an idol. Matthew chapter 6, verse 24 says this. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and the idol of wealth or wealth, you see? And so we're going to have to make a choice here, and that's why it's so hard to worship the Lord. So maybe that's why 
This is one of the reasons why the world is so intent on removing Christ out of Christmas. Why? Because Christ is greater than us and our idols. Christ reminds us of all of our need for a savior from our sins. Christ shows us that we will all be accountable to God someday. So let's get rid of Christ. Let's keep Christmas, but let's get rid of Christ. (laughs) We don't have any need for him. Let's worship other idols. You see? And so idolatry keeps us away. I want to finish this part of this by reading to you these words from William Templeton. William Temple. You probably won't remember William Temple because his words are not well widely read. But they're so accurate. And I just want you to sit back for just a moment and listen to how he describes worship. Worship is the submission of all our nature to God. It is the quickening of the conscience by its holiness. The nourishment of the mind with his truth. The purifying of imagination by his beauty. The opening of the heart to his love. The surrender of will to his purpose. And all this gathered up in adoration. The most selfless emotion of which our nature is capable. And therefore the chief remedy for that self-centeredness. Which is our original sin. And the source of all actual sin. Wow. Now that is some kind of description of worship. So one response that you and I can have to God, we can seek him, we can find him with sustainable joy, and we can worship him. Personal challenge, very simple, very quick. This Christmas, respond to the Christ of Christmas like the wise men. Make your personal response to seek Christ. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is the rewarder of those who seek him. Give God a chance. Seek him out. The next challenge is make your response to find Christ. And to find joy. In Psalms chapter 16. Psalms chapter 16. It says this in verse 11. You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is the fullness of joy. In your right hand. There are pleasures forever. Sustainable joy. Make it your personal response to worship Christ. Reverence him, respect him, and submit to him. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 13. You shall fear only the Lord your God, and you shall worship him. Christmas is more than just another holiday, folks. It's a special time of year because Christ is special. Now respond to Christ by seeking him. By finding him with joy and worship and honoring him and obeying him. Let's pray together. Dear Father, 
We come before you with all kinds of expectations and hopes and dreams. But Father, when all is said and done, it is what you want from us that is important. And you want us to respond appropriately to your son, Jesus Christ. So help us to do that today. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the song of response.